Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting edge information. In this episode, Blood Associate Editor, Dr. John Crispino, along with his colleagues, Dr. Zuzana Tathova, Dr. Omar Abdel Wahab, and Dr. Ulrich Steidl, discuss molecular mechanisms of hematological malignancies. My name is John Crispino. I work at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. My name is Zuzana Totova, and I work at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. My name is Omar Abdel Wahab, and I work at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. My name is Uli Steidel, and I work at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Montefiore Medical Center. The theme of this review series is the molecular mechanisms of hematologic malignancies with a focus on myeloid neoplasms. We know that mutations that drive blood cancers act through a variety of mechanisms, including alterations in transcription, pre-mRNA splicing, RNA modifications, DNA methylation, and chromatin architecture. However, a detailed understanding has been limited until recently as there has been great progress in understanding these mechanisms. The major goal of this series is to educate clinicians and researchers on our current understanding of the molecular basis for leukemia development. Another goal is to provide a detailed rationale for clinical testing of novel agents that target these various pathways, such as splicing inhibitors. I hope that this review series stimulates groundbreaking basic and clinical advances in hematologic malignancies. This series includes the following five review articles. First, splicing factor mutations in hematologic malignancies written by Dr. Omar Abdel Wahab. Second, epigenetic dysregulation in myeloid malignancies by Dr. Maria Figueroa and colleagues. Third, gene expression at a single molecule level, implications for MDS and AML by Dr. Uli Steidel and colleagues. Fourth, RNA modifications in hematopoietic malignancies, a new research frontier by Dr. Jun Chen and colleagues. And finally, cohesive mutations in myeloid malignancies by Zuzana Tatova and colleagues. These articles complement one another in that they, together they cover the major areas that we currently know contribute to the malignancies. There are certainly other pathways that are involved, but the ones in this review highlight many recent advances and will stimulate further investigation. Now I'd like to introduce Dr. Zuzana Tatova, who wrote the article, Cohesive Mutations in Myeloid Malignancies. Thank you very much, Dr. Crispino, for uh, giving us the opportunity to review the current state of the literature on cohesive mutations in myeloid malignancies. My lab has been greatly interested in this field um, ever since the identification of cohesive mutations as recurrent genetic drivers in myelodysplastic syndromes, acute myeloid leukemia, and a number of other myeloid neoplasms back in 2013 and 2014. A lot of work has been done on this topic across the globe in a number of laboratories, which are all trying to understand the basic mechanisms by which cohesive mutations drive tumorigenesis and identify new ways of targeting these mutations for the benefit of our patients. The goal of this review series, as described by Dr. Crispino, was to uh, bring both our clinical as well as research community up to date with most recent advances in the field of myeloid malignancies, and in particular in our case, in the context of cohesin mutations. 
In our article, we review the function of the cohesin complex, which is a multimeric protein complex that wraps around the DNA and is critical regulator of a number of key cellular functions, such as sister chromatid cohesion, DNA looping interactions leading to chromatin organization, uh, regulation of transcription, DNA damage repair, as well as DNA replication. Our most recent understanding of the function of normal cohesin complexes and the disordered function of these complexes when they're mutated in myeloid malignancies. And in particular, we spend a lot of time describing efforts of multiple laboratories around the globe that have identified defects in chromatin organization and DNA looping, chromatin accessibility, transcriptional changes affecting lineage commitment, as well as defects in genomic integrity that are associated with cohesive mutations. And finally, with the goal to try to understand novel therapeutic venues for patients with these specific mutations, we describe a number of potential therapeutic targets that may be worth pursuing for the scientific community as we try to think about bringing our most recent knowledge back to the clinic. Cohesive mutations are present in anywhere from 10 to 20% of patients with specific myeloid malignancies and are generally associated with poor overall survival. And therefore, identifying new therapeutic targets for this subset of MDS and secondary AML is of critical value. One of the findings that we and others have identified is that cohesive mutations lead to deregulation of genomic integrity and accumulation of DNA damage repair, which provides new therapeutic venue. And our findings have been taken forward to phase one, two clinical trials where patients with cohesive mutant myelodysplastic syndromes and AML are treated with a PARP inhibitor called telozoparib. In our article, we describe additional ways in which targeting of the mutant cohesin complex um, could be achieved, including modulation of the histone deacetylase enzyme HDAC8, as well as specifically targeting the STAC1 versus STAC2 cohesin complexes. There's a wealth of information that we've gained from a number of different models of cohesive mutant disease, including primary human cell-based models, mouse models, cell lines, patient samples. And these have really identified a large number of alterations, including alterations in chromatin architecture, looping interactions, transcriptional changes, as well as management of DNA damage repair. I think what remains to be seen is which of these many functions that are affected in cohesive mutant disease are the true drivers of transformation in this context and which are passengers. And that question still remains to be answered. Dr. Tatova, if I may ask a question, could you please discuss the potential relationship between cohesive mutations in childhood disorders, including myeloid leukemia and Down syndrome, where the incidence approaches 50%? As Dr. Crispina noted, there is striking observation of prevalence of mutations in the cohesin complex, not only in adult myeloid neoplasms, but also a number of childhood myeloid diseases, including Down syndrome, associated acute megakaryoblastic leukemia, Brunx1 familial platelet disorder, as well as patients with GATA2 mutations who develop MDS and AML. In the context of Down syndrome, AMKL, cohesin mutations or mutations in cohesin-associated proteins represent about 50% 
of progression lesions when researchers have studied the progression from transient abnormal myelopoiesis that happens in these patients to avert leukemia. We have not specifically studied these changes in our lab. However, the, the mechanisms that have been proposed and that may relate to Down syndrome AMKL, similar to what's been proposed in the context of MDS and AML in the adult population, is that chromatin reorganization that's mediated by cohesin mutation leads to changes in self-renewal mechanisms of hematopoietic stem cells and progenitor cells by means of specific changes in looping interactions of regulatory elements that activate key lineage commitment genes. Now I'd like to introduce Dr. Omar Abdel-Wahab. I want to thank uh, Dr. Crispino and the Blood Editorial Team for inviting me to contribute this review article uh, to Blood. And our article was focused on reviewing mutations in the RNA splicing machinery in a variety of hematologic malignancies. And as you all are likely aware, mutations in genes encoding RNA splicing factors are amongst the most common class of genetic alterations in patients with myelodysplastic syndromes, AML, particularly AML, acute myeloid leukemia of the elderly, and chronic lymphocytic leukemia, as well as a variety of other forms of myeloid and lymphoid uh, malignancies. And what's particularly interesting about these mutations is that many of them appear that they would confer a gain of function that's distinct from loss of function. And that's very interesting from a standpoint of pathogenesis, of trying to understand how these mutations might drive uh, the disease development, but also really interesting in the possibility that they might confer exciting new therapeutic targets, either directly targeting these mutations or some downstream effect that they generate. And so the review article is basically focused on um, reviewing what's been known about these mutations in the literature in the 10 or so years since they were discovered, both from the standpoint of uh, basic mechanisms of biology and also from the standpoint of what they might mean therapeutically. And so that was uh, the focus of the article. This review article on alterations in the RNA splicing machinery in hematologic malignancies is of great interest and wide interest to the hematology community because of the frequency of these mutations in both myeloid and lymphoid neoplasms and the potential uh, therapeutic value that these uh, mutations and studying them might uh, generate. The study and discovery of mutations in RNA splicing factors has a number of clinical implications, both in diagnosis prognosis, and also in the therapy for patients. So currently, the discovery of some of these mutations and their very high frequencies in certain subtypes of MDS, for example, myelodysplastic syndrome with ring sideroblasts, discovery of mutations in SF31, this RNA, core RNA splicing factor being present in more than 80% of patients with that subtype of MDS, that actually is now part of the diagnostic criteria for that form of MDS. And so Actually, looking for that genetic alteration is important in diagnosis. These mutations also are very important prognostically, both in MDS, AML, and also in CLL, where listing them within the clinical evaluation provides important uh, prognostic information that's utilized clinically. And then I think the part that's probably most exciting, uh, but still remains to be better developed, is trying to develop therapies targeting cells with these mutations or understanding what uh, therapeutic vulnerabilities these mutations may confer. So as Dr. Crispino alluded to in his introduction, there have been a number of drugs, small molecules that target the RNA splicing machinery. And there's literature, both from our group, but also others, identifying 
that cells with some of these mutations and splicing machinery might be preferentially sensitive to some of these new therapies that are in development. And these are currently in early phase clinical trials in patients with relapsed refractory MDS and AML. So there is direct therapeutic importance to discovery of these mutations. And we hope that their discovery is going to hopefully lead to new therapies for these diseases. There are a number of drug companies and academic investigators attempting to discover chemical matter that interrupts the splicing machinery that can be used for therapeutic purposes. And these work by a variety of different mechanisms, only a portion of which have been tasted in human beings in clinical trials. So I'm very excited about the possibility that a number of these new drugs may enter a clinical development over the next couple of years. There's also a number of interesting ideas about how these mutations in the splicing machinery might influence the immune system and response to a variety of immunotherapies. And so I think trying to study that further may uh, result in new therapies beyond just small molecules targeting the splicing machinery. And that's an area that a number of people are very interested in as well. So there are a number of different therapeutic modalities being developed to target cancers with these mutations that we think could be really important moving forward. Dr. Abdel-Wahab, your review discusses the fact that there are a number of splicing factor genes that are mutated in hematologic malignancies. Are all of these splicing factor mutations equal in terms of their biology and their sensitivity to splicing inhibitors? This is an excellent question, John. What we know about so far is that the basic impact of these mutations on RNA splicing and misplicing of individual target genes and gene expression is that the mutations are not equivalent to one another. And this also is potentially read out in the clinical associations between these mutations and the subtypes of leukemias and lymphomas where they're mutated. So for example, SF3B1 mutations I mentioned earlier are heavily enriched in a specific clinical subtype of MDS that has a good prognosis and very specific clinical presentation, whereas mutations in the RNA splicing factors, SRSF2 and U2AF1, are associated with more higher risk forms of MDS and AML, for example. So we know that they have different downstream effects. At the same time, it is an excellent question that you raise because these mutations do not co-occur frequently in patients, and they seem to maybe overlap in the diseases that they're represented in in some ways. And so there is potentially some overlap in their effects that we don't currently understand. And this is a central question uh, that's also noted in the review, so I appreciate your asking that. Now I'd like to introduce Dr. Uli Steidel. I'd like to thank Dr. Chris Pino and the Blood Editorial Board for the opportunity to contribute to this very exciting review series. Our own contribution to this has been focused on recent studies at the single molecule level of transcription in normal and malignant hematopoiesis, which is a rapidly emerging field of high importance. Transcriptional dysregulation in general is a hallmark of myeloid malignancies, uh, in particular myelodysplastic syndromes and acute myeloid leukemia, and including at the level of disease-driving pre-leukemic stem cells and leukemia stem cells. And there's many examples of such transcription factors that are well known, including, for instance, PU1, RUNGST1, CBP-alpha, EVI1, the GADA family transcription factors, P53, and many others. And what recent work has demonstrated is that at the molecular level, transcription is not a continuous 
but rather a bursty and highly fluctuating process. And that was revealed by recent technical advances that have enabled the study of transcription at a single molecule level. And really this, the burstiness of the transcriptional process is really a consequence of the biophysical nature of transcription and is driven in large part by low copy number effects of molecules that mediate transcription including, you know, polymerase two as the end executor of transcription and the poorly mixed environment in cells. And transcriptional bursts are particularly relevant in cells in which uh, transcription factors are initially low and where transcriptional programs are initiated. Uh, for example, in stem cells, other not lineage committed cells or their malignant counterparts for instance, leukemia stem cells. And as a consequence, no defined or really static transcriptional state of any cell, including leukemia stem cells, may actually exist. But what these recent studies, including from our own lab, has shown that individual cells uh, occupy what you could describe as a transcriptional space rather than just one defined spot on the transcriptional landscape. And that even individual cells, depending on the burstiness of the transcriptional process, can have very different transcriptional profiles just within minutes when they are detected. And that is important to keep in mind when we are interpreting a single snapshot experiments and analyses of RNA detection, including uh, all our favorite methods to do this, like quantitative real-time RT-PCR, RNA-seq, or older array studies, or others. So now you may ask, what are the implications of this for leukemia pathogenesis and therapy? And there's several very important implications. And the first is that historically, we have looked at disease-driving clones as genetically defined entities. And what these recent transcriptional studies have shown is that overlaid to this genomic space, there's a transcriptional space that also defines disease-driving clones. And this has very important implications, both in terms of therapeutic targeting of those clones, but also resistance formation. So, for instance, the direct targeting of some of these key transcription factors is becoming possible as we speak, and therapeutic modalities are being developed that directly target key transcription factors. But also, it may really be required to control the transcriptional space that, and the heterogeneity and, and variability that cells are operating in. Because you can imagine if a cell can move around in a certain space, that can also give rise to therapeutic resistance. And so it'll be very important to understand the mechanisms that control the heterogeneity, transcriptional heterogeneity and noise better, and then develop therapeutic avenues to influence this space. And this could really be very effective, in particular with known anti-leukemic strategies in order to prevent resistance, which we all know is the key driver of poor outcomes in both myelodysplastic syndromes as well as acute myeloid leukemia. 
what are the implications uh, of this basic science work and these basic science discoveries for our view of, of the clinical landscape and clinical opportunities in, in MDS and AML. And I think the most important implication is that in the light of these single molecule studies of transcription is that a defined leukemic state may not be an appropriate view of disease pathogenesis in MDS and AML. And one alternative hypothesis is that leukemic cells or the leukemic transcriptional network may be better understood as a set of trapped cellular states on the differentiation landscape, which normally support multi-lineage hematopoietic differentiation. And these states really likely comprise a larger number of substates that are driven through transcriptional heterogeneity and in fact, transcriptional stochasticity. And for the future, this means that there's really a pressing need to define the boundaries, the transcriptional boundaries in which normal cells operate and to contrast this with the transcriptional space that let's say leukemia stem cells operate in in the context of leukemia. And through these new insights at the scientific level, it will be possible to devise strategies to therapeutically try and control that space and thereby counteract the formation of resistance, which is, as we all know, very frequent in particular with targeted therapies that target single or few subclones within the entire subclonal heterogeneity uh, that we're dealing with in MDS and AML. Dr. Steidel, your laboratory and several others have shown preclinical success with agents that target specific transcription factors. What do you think the prospects are for these therapies in clinical trials? So what are the prospects of new targeting strategies against transcription factors in MDS and AML? So there is several really important developments in that area. So first of all, several rearranged transcription factors, such as the AML1-EDO translocation, has been targeted with small molecules that can interfere with the normal binding partners of, of AML1-ETO and, and thereby try to restore dysfunctional transcriptional programs. In addition, other key transcription factors like P53 have been uh, successfully targeted. There is a number of successful targeting strategies, including with uh, stapled peptides that target the naturally uh, occurring uh, endogenous inhibitors of P53 and, and target the P53 MDMX and, and MDM2 interaction and thereby lead to a reactivation of inactivated P53 in patients with P53 wild type. And then the third area is the direct targeting of transcription factors. And, and what I mean by that is really the direct targeting of transcription factor binding to the DNA or, or you know, the sequence-specific interaction of transcription factors with the chromatin. And you know, our group and other groups in the field have made 
very exciting progress in that area. And several compounds have been developed that are now able to directly block transcription factor chromatin interaction in a sequence, a specific manner. Most of these efforts are still in the preclinical state, but we hope and think that through medicinal chemistry efforts, some of these candidate compounds can be moved towards clinical application in the next few years. And then the other really exciting area is the use of PROTAC systems and tools, protein degradation, to really target some key aberrant transcription factors and, and transcriptional networks and nodes directly in the future. And that's another area I think that's rapidly evolving and where I have high hopes that some of these approaches will reach the clinic in the next few years. Dr. Steidel, your review discusses some highly technical technologies. Could you briefly elaborate on some of these state-of-the-art techniques and how they could be applied to better understand single molecule level dysfunction? I would be happy to speak a little bit about the technology that we have been using. The most sensitive method for the detection of transcription is so-called single molecule RNA fish or fluorescence in situ hybridization. And that's a technology that enables uh, through a hybridization and amplification strategy or through the simultaneous binding of multiple probes onto the RNA, really the detection of uh, single molecules of RNA as they are synthesized at the transcription site. And that way you get at least, you know, two pieces of information, and that is really single molecule counts of the RNA abundance in cells, but you also, since this is detected by microscopy, you get information about cytoplasmic RNA, nuclear RNA, and thereby also about the kinetics of the process in that you can define really the number and frequency of transcription start sites and transcription bursts within single cells, and then how many cells in a given population are actually actively transcribing, so actively bursting at any given time. And uh, so that information is both highly sensitive, but also tells you something about the dynamics of the process that cannot be revealed easily with other methodologies. And what I would like to add is that this technology, it sounds extremely fancy and to some level it is, but in some respect it is also not because these probes that are used for the RNA detection, they can be designed through publicly available bioinformatics tools against any RNA of interest in any species, whatever you're interested in, human, mouse, zebrafish, others, and against any RNA target uh, in principle. There's certain rules that have to be applied, but it's not fundamentally different than trying to find, let's say, primers for a QRT-PCR. So it's a very universally applicable technology, and we have shared the technology with many other groups and have lots of collaborations on this. We'd be happy to help and make this even more broadly available in the future. I'd like to thank all of you for participating in this podcast and for your contribution to Blood. Your articles have enhanced our understanding and highlight these recent advances in transcriptional therapy, ranging from RNA splicing through chromatin architecture.
to our listeners, I hope that this review series stimulates your interest in the mechanisms of leukemogenesis and the development of novel therapies that target gene regulation. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to read the review series for more insights. Thank you for listening to the review series on molecular mechanisms of hematological malignancies. To read the articles, visit www.bloodjournal.org. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.